Welcome to Nazarene Open University here at Kingdom of the Logos. And today we're going to be talking about the Old Testament and how that relates to holiness. Because one of the questions that Christians often have is, well, Jesus, he came and he saved us and he came to fulfill the law. So what does that mean about the continuation of the law? Does that mean that God come along and said, you know, it's no longer good to honor your father and mother. In fact, you should throw them aside. <laughs> Suddenly bearing false witness is desirable. I mean, how do we actually relate to the Old Testament? And how do we make sure we don't fall into the gap of throwing away the law and instead understanding Christ comes to fulfill it? And then what does that mean for us as we live lives as a holy people? So today we'll be looking at part three of our module class, Becoming a Holy People. And this again is sort of the open university version of the district module classes out there, but it's for all people. Without further hesitation, there are three of us here in the studio. I myself and Pastor J. Dillon Proctor, and there are two others with me. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Pastor Mike Proctor. And Pastor Amanda, would you open up for us today in prayer? Sure. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the many blessings you have bestowed upon your people. Now be with us as we endeavor to have this conversation that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and the holy courage to do all that you have commanded us. Be with us, we pray. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, so as we understand holiness, looking at the Old Testament is really, really important. And it's also very onerous on us that we don't fall into the trap of just wanting to cast everything away under the guise that Jesus has come and suddenly God's attitude about the world has changed. You know, it happens every so many years that someone does come out and say, well, Christians don't need to follow the Old Testament. You know, there's a mega church pastor down in Georgia who said something to this effect a few years ago. And you look throughout church history, you can find even from early on, you had great villains like Marcion of Sinope coming along saying, God the Father is the demiurge, this evil cosmic demon, and throw away everything to do with the Jewish Torah and everything with the Jewish scriptures. Throw them away. People do this all the time. And there is a logical reason why you could fall into that trap when you see Jesus coming and offering salvation, not simply just through a legalistic code, not simply through works that apply some sort of satisfaction to the law. It's easy to fall into that trap. But let's just have some opening thoughts about that and appreciating the Old Testament and not getting in that hole. Pastor Amanda? Well, I think, again, the hill I'm going to die on, the words that will be written on my grave, uh, prevenient grace helps us understand this conversation, mm. right? Because if God has, if God only responds to sin in Jesus Christ, we've got a problem. And again, Jesus Christ's pinnacle response of God's love uh, to sin in a broken world. But that God didn't just wake up in the first century and go, oh, I got to do something about sin. Um, that God had been working for uh, generations, centuries, millennia on the brokenness in the world. And God had always been moving people back towards God's self. And we see this in the grand narrative of our Old Testament that, I mean, God calls individuals, God calls communities, God eventually calls a nation uh, to be blessed so they may bless others, so that salvation may permeate the whole of, of creation. And so we have to, I think, if we're going to understand what Christ did on the cross rightly, then we have to go back. What was God doing before then? Um, I mean, this is like any good history student would tell you this. When you look at a specific event you're wanting to study, you always have to go back a few decades or even centuries to see what led up to the thing you're studying. And if we're talking about holiness, this idea of uh, God calling people to be that which they were created to be, uh, we have to see how creation starts that story off. And then, of course, the progression throughout the Old Testament narrative. Alrighty, and you answered a lot of questions I was going to throw back at you. Oh, sorry. I, I gonna, <laughs> but you kind of made that thesis there that, that Jesus doesn't just simply come in response to sin. Like out of nowhere, God's like, oh, yes, a sin problem. I guess I'll send my son. And you kind of made the point that holiness did in fact exist before the day of Pentecost. And God, who is holy because he is, has been doing things of holiness for a long time. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I think although, yes, the birthplace of the church, we, we call that the or the birthday of the church is Pentecost. But we have to understand that even before Pentecost, there was a community, a fellowship, a gathering, which is really where we get the word ecclesia and which gets translated into church. Um, that existed long, long before Peter and, you know, the disciples were gathered up in an upper room. Uh, that word can be basically traced back to a Hebrew word about, and that I can't remember now, but about congregations, yeah. gatherings, the people who came to praise God, to receive revelation from God, and then go out and to be a holy people. Sure, absolutely. Pastor Mike, your thoughts on this, making 
the, the simple thesis that we have to appreciate the value of the Old Testament and not just as a novelty to look at, but also realizing that there's a lot of truth that we can appreciate there in applying our lives. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, for Christianity and as well as Judaism, it is very, uh, it's not unique to have, uh, compared to other religions, it's not unique to have a creation account. But there is something very important and powerful the way that, uh, you know, the, the Jewish scriptures, the Christian scriptures, we go back to Genesis being the first book and that is where we see a relational god and and how holiness everything that belongs to god is called to be holy because of its relationship to god and so as we look back obviously genesis is not the oldest writings of scripture that we have but it's being at the very beginning as it extremely important because it lays that foundation of who God is and what God is calling us to be. Yeah, absolutely. And we're here to say the quiet parts out loud and have a good time with one another. There are some people who want to come along and chop off Genesis and Revelation for different reasons. Mm. But the problem you'll eventually have is you'll you'll destroy everything because the foundation of Scripture this key principle that God made the heavens and the earth with order, with goodness, Mm -hmm. and this being drawn out of the void, and not so much that God come along and did something with someone else's idea, but God creates out of nothing. He brings this substance, this purpose, this meaning, and that has fallen. You know, that's, that's key to understanding why the Holy Spirit would sanctify people that they could live holy lives. That's key to understanding why Jesus would save you, that you would be born again and be able Mm to return to that providential design. Pastor Mike? Yeah, I think as well, if if we are to be God's people, there's this whole understanding. Sure, you can read, you know, one book at a time, one scripture at a time, but where we find such beautiful themes reoccurring over and over again throughout all of Scripture in its entirety is we see that God delivers, God rescues, God cares about His creation. We see a God of love, and we also see salvation taking place. So, yes, all of our Scripture is extremely important, including the Old Testament. Certainly. All right, so as we begin our lesson today, and we're not in the district module material just yet, just a couple of preparatory things that I want to share. I want us to understand that the key to a biblical worldview and biblical thinking, which is lost in a lot of places right now, is to begin with the understanding that God alone makes the good. There are no exceptions. We're doing a district module class right now. I I don't have the power to make you good by sending through someone through a class. Credentials don't have the power to do that. Also, rejection of the things of the world don't have the power to do that. God alone makes the good. Understand that and hold that near and dear to your heart. You go back to Genesis, at the end of each day, God says it is good. That is where goodness comes from. Second, you are a fallen creature. Just hold these two things in mind. God alone makes the good. You are a fallen creature. And holiness is this movement we have. And again, this is imperfect language, so no one come and smite me over this. (laughs) But when we pursue the path of holiness, we are returning back to that goodness which God had for us because God is holy, because he is. And we're recognizing we're fallen creatures and living as aspirational, holy and excellent creatures who are now returned to that providential design. Mm -hmm. Pastor Mike, would you lead us in the Shema as we begin? Absolutely. Um, Deuteronomy 6, four and five, be attentive. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And um, I can also do um, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Akkad. Amen. In the Hebrew, which is very <laughs> I probably get a lot of lot of uh, feedback on that. I may have pronounced some of that without the guttural uh, <laughs> properly. You gotta but, get the uh, Shema. But it is the Shema, the prayer of the Jewish people that is often uh, repeated every day. Yeah, and we see Jesus doing that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and of course, the Shema. We we find this idea: love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, with all your strength. 
This is foundational to mm-hmm. yes. many of the themes which Jesus teaches in the gospel. Of course, that new commandment is is very much woven into this. You know, love the Lord your God and then love your, your neighbors yourself. These things, they are extensions built upon God's eternal truth, God's eternal love, and God's eternal holiness. Okay, so as we continue through our lesson today, I want us to understand that critical thinking is really important. So as we take these scriptures, I want us to ask a couple of questions, and they all can be summed up as this question. What is the the image we are reflecting? Whom are we serving? So I've got three questions that, that are subcategories of that one. What are our motivations? What are our allegiances? And what are the, the core purposes behind all of our actions? You know, who is guiding our moral compass? Number two, where does holiness stop? Is consecrating something holy, like Moses might command there with consecrating the firstborn child, you know, is something like that just a formality? You know, we checked the box, we, mm. we did the little ritual with our baby, and now we can do whatever we want. Or does that holiness actually continue beyond just the letter of the law to a whole lifestyle? Number three, how does something relate to God's providential order and the fall? You know, we're going to look at some some scriptures today, some from Nehemiah, some from Esther. And Nehemiah is really worried that it's shameful for the people to live in just desolation and disrepair. You know, God did not create that we might fall into ugliness and things which are not good. When Esther is there faced with this problem where this villain wants to kill all of our people, you know, God did not create us that we might just be destroyed under some untruth and wicked scheme. And even though, you know, the king of Persia may not be mentioned or the hour in which Nehemiah lives may not be mentioned by the law sometime before with Moses, they understand that God's providential order spurs them to react a certain way in a certain situation. Mm. So let me begin with Exodus 18. And Exodus 18 shows us a very practical application of holiness. Throughout my walk as a minister, and even before I I came into pastoral um, duties, I always found it fascinating how Jethro and Moses actually show you some things you can stick in your pocket about holiness. Because we might read the Shema, we might see Moses at the burning bush and hear God say, you know, I am who I am, and and wonder about that, well, what does that mean? How do I I live day-to-day with that? How do I live day-to-day with one who is holy simply because he is? Well, In Exodus 18, Moses is judging the people, and in doing this, he is representing God. He is supposed to be an image of holiness for the people. And his father-in-law, Jethro, comes along and says, one, on principle, you shouldn't be the single standalone image of God. That's not a terribly good thing. And also, secondly, it's not really possible for you to handle all these people's problems logistically. I mean, I, I don't know about Pastor Amanda over there. She's over there kind of laughing at this. I don't know if you can sort out, you know, thousands, no. hundreds of thousands. No, of- I can barely sort out the, the 30 or 50 or so I have in my church. So, yeah. no, I couldn't imagine trying to coordinate hundreds, thousands of people. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not possible to do this. But his father-in-law gives him some really good advice, and it is holiness advice. So I want us to go to Exodus chapter 18 and beginning in verse 19 and 20, it says, Hearken now unto my voice. I will give thee counsel and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward that thou mayest bring the causes unto God and thou shalt teach them the ordinances, the laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk and the work that they must do. Okay, so what Jethro is saying in these two verses is, Moses, you're representing God to the people. And yes, I'm reading from the King James right now, but it's clearly saying this is, this is your, your path to holiness. The walk that you are supposed to live should, should be reflecting God. It should be a Godward movement. Mm-hmm. And then in verse 21, here's where you get this threefold metric that you can stick in your pocket. Jethro says, you shall provide out of all the people, able men, those who fear God. So that's your first metric, people who fear God. Secondly, men of truth. And third, those who hate covetousness. Take them and place them over that they might be rulers over thousands, hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. And if thou shalt do this, now this is Exodus eighteen twenty three. If thou shalt do this and the God command thee so, 
then thou shalt be able to endure, and all this people shall go to their place in peace. Okay, so these three folds. The first one, fearing God. Hmm. This is a recognition that says we are fearing God alone, the dangerous and compelling God. We respect him. We are sovereign unto him. You know, we are under his sovereignty. And then the second one says we we are people of truth. Not just what we perceive as truth, but God's truth. You know, this is the second one. It, it comes subservient to that first fold. Mm. We are righteous. We are just people. And the third category there is how you relate to the world around you. Hating covetousness, despising dishonest gain, despising bribes. These three folds. One, how do you relate with God? Two, how do you actually build your own character in relation to God? Three, when you actually deal with other people with your own character in relation to God, how do you handle that? So what are our thoughts on this? Just throwing this out there as a metric for holiness and application for how we live day to day from the Old Testament. You know, I'd just like to say I I tried to uh, uh, quote some Hebrew earlier, but you went back to the original King James Version on that. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, so I'm just uh, giving you a kudos on that. But there's something here that I think is very, very important in this is that God doesn't call a person. He calls a person to be holy, no doubt. But he also calls human beings to be a holy people. Mm. And so what we see is that we are called to be leaders to reflect right living in front of uh, the world around us. And so this this uh, these threefold things that you say, you know, write them down, keep them in your notebook, that is very important. Jethro is giving great advice. Yeah. Well, I think also there's some there's a really interesting clear distinction as we're talking about this Moses is being overwhelmed because the people are wanting him to judge. And it's not that he's not supposed to judge or be the reflection of God to the people, but they're asking him to almost be God. Or even for Moses himself, he may have thought he needed to be God to these people. And and there is a distinction between being Christ-like and then trying to make ourselves God. And I think especially for ministers and leaders within the life of the church, because we do have all of this, or we're supposed to have all this education, and we talk about this stuff a lot, we can fall into this trap to think we can figure this out in our own strength. And Jethro becomes that reflective image of God that comes in, because even God, God's self doesn't work alone. God is triune. There is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then even outside of the Trinity, God made space for creation to join in uh, the redemptive workings of of God. So I think there's something really cool for Jethro to come in and be like, Moses, hold up. And also, I like that like these three things that were given, to fear God, to be people of truth, to hate covetedness, um, even though at this point they may not have the Decalogue all figured out, because I don't think that comes until chapter 20, if I'm remembering off the top of my head. Yeah, so they don't have the Ten Commandments yet. They're still figuring out who they are as a people. They're barely out of the the exodus, out of slavery. And this is kind of the first three things they're hearing of, if you are to be a holy people, um, to be called out. Um, Literally, they are called out of slavery, out of Egypt, but also figuratively called out of the corruption of the world then what does it look like to then be a people that is no longer defined by the world's standards? You're to fear God, be people of truth, and to hate covetedness. And we'll find that by doing those things, we will be better reflectors of God's image than if we try to be God within our own strength. Sure. And going back to my initial key to the biblical worldview, God alone makes the good. Mm -hmm. And if you apply this metric here, again, some sort of formula is not going to make you good. But this formula is a good tool, yes, and it helps us open our mind up to where we are walking in that Godward pursuit, as Jethro says. If you are someone who fears God, you know, if that's the starting of your worldview, then of course you're recognizing that God alone makes the good. It, it helps you have that proper motivation. Secondly, if you're someone who is firm in truth, you are grounding yourself in righteousness. And the reason why I use the King James translation is because of its application of the word truth and then its word choice of hating covetousness. It uses a strong moral language that is certain and has a backbone to it. 
here, if you are someone who is that person of truth, you're going to recognize you're a fallen creature, but also that you're called upward. And then that hating covetousness, it has this firm character that says, we're not doing this. We're not doing the dishonest gains. We're not doing the bribes. We're not doing all the scams of fallen creation. But yet we do represent God. We're here to be a blessing. We're here to be people of truth where we'll pull you up, but we're not crossing that line. And, and it's that stern compassion, the real mercy of Jesus, which comes along and says, all right, you can be healed, but you're going to have to rise up and make your bed. There's that firm compassion that is completely charitable, but also not willing to cave in to evil and be an enabler. Mm-hmm. Pastor Amanda? Um, I was just going to say, I think, though, also what I, I do enjoy about the Church of Nazarene when we, in our article of faith, I think we articulate that entire sanctification, there's a distinct difference between that and maturity. And the reason I bring that up here is um, we can still make mistakes. We can still use these tools to the best of our abilities, and sometimes we... We, we try to use God's judgment in applying that, that God-given judgment into our world, and sometimes things get out of order, and we mess up. And I think that is then also why it is important when we hear this conversation about holiness, it is always put in the context of a community. Again, not that there is an individual ch- choice, but that community helps keep us accountable. Because sometimes we can have the best intentions, right? And then we don't quite, it doesn't quite work out. Um, and that's where the community comes along and says, hey, again, like Jethro does, and tells Moses, reminds Moses of who he is and whose he is, so that he can go out and live that holiness and aspire continually upward. Sure. Pastor Mike? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a slippery slope, and I just want to, you know, add to what Pastor Amanda said. And, and you know, it is reaching back to the beginning of what we did at the, at the beginning of the podcast. God alone makes the good. And, and, you know, when you first hear this, there is an order. Fear God, you know, people of truth, and hating dishonest gain. And so, but we have to realize it is God who makes good, not sure. our work that makes sure. us good. It is God's work in us. And we also remember that we are that fallen creature that has falling out of right relationship. And these things, don't get the heart, uh, the cart before the horse, but let us realize that this order, that we are fallen creatures, that the life we live reflects that work that God is doing in us. And I love how uh, Jethro puts fear God first. Sure, and for sure. God is the one doing the work. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, it produce, and we produce fruit out of that. Yeah, absolutely. Pastor Mike, while we're at this, will you go ahead and read Genesis 1, 27 as we start our anthology of Scripture looking at the Old Testament roots for holiness? Absolutely. Genesis 1, 27. Be attentive. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. All right, now as we come to this, again, when you look in Genesis there is this understanding that there's a void. There's a, a nothingness there. God is hovering over the face of the deep. There's no purpose, no meaning, no light, no substance. It's just nothing. And nothing is a powerful thing. You know, when you look at all the, the wickedness of evil, the wickedness of, of sin, it, it generally wants to pull back to the nothing. We often wonder, why is there so much purposeless suffering in the world? Why is there, you know, just irrational calamity at work? Well, evil wants to take things back to that void. There is no purpose. There's no reason behind it. When God made mankind, he does create them in his image, male and female, fully whole and just, sufficient to stand, though free to fall. I love that quote from John Milton's Paradise Lost. We find that God made them and he made them good. Their design is actually good before the fall and they are created to to live in this world which is not um, just going to be a a static place there's work to do they have a garden to tend there's life to be had and it's it's a beautiful beautiful thing let's move now to genesis 17 1 pastor amanda would you read that all right so we're jumping forward quite a while in time uh, to abraham or Abram at this point. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. I'm sorry? Oh, you're good. You're good. No, that's it. Okay. Um, but as we look at this as well, God is making the declaration, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Be faithful and blameless. 
it seems like a simple thing. It's not always that easy to live by this. Um, Abram and Sarah definitely had some some issues in doing this. <laughs> but but yeah. Pastor Mike. Yeah, and you know, this is where it's not talking about a liter- literally walking. I mean, you know, putting one foot in front of the other, but it is the journey through life. And and you know, that that translates really well from the Hebrew to the Greek even into the English. And so it is your walk. It is your, the way you live your life before not only God, but the rest of the world, that we belong to God and we are there to to live in this uh, uh, righteousness, that we're there to, to reflect God's love into this world. Mm. And if, if Pastor Mike is going to call me out for reading from the King James, I'm going to call him out and say, you know, actually, Abraham and Sarah did do a lot of literal walking. <laughs> well, they did. They that, did. But, but this is speaking more directly about their lifestyle mm-hmm. and who they are, their yeah. character, sure. and really, as Pastor Amanda said, who they belong to. Yeah. They belong to God. Well, and I think what's also interesting at this is if we're thinking kind of in the historical narrative, a lot of times when God will introduce God's self later on, God will say, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. And he, God uses the how God has acted in the past to begin to build onto that new generation how God will continue to act and will act in the future. But at this point in the story, God cannot be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because he's just now getting to call Abraham. So God's got to kind of set the foundation for how God's going to act and what God requires of those who are going to follow. And we find this very, again, kind of short little snippet of being faithful and blameless. And this is foundational to the character of God, that God will always be faithful and requires faithfulness of God's people. And God will always be that which God intends to be. There, there's no mixture. There's no mess up. There's no confusion. And that's what like the blameless, the purity, the holiness. Often we, we think of these in very... Um, you know, language of blemishes and dark spots and things like that, dirty. And then those are human analogies we're trying to talk about an infinite being. But really what that is, is God will always be that which God promises to be. There, There's no question. God is good. There is no evil. There is no darkness. There is no, you know, ulterior motive. God is good. And now God calls God's people to be good. Certainly. And as we read through these scriptures, we've looked at two. You know, these are still true. Hold them in your pocket. Keep them. And even going back to Exodus, going back to the Shema, things we read earlier in the program, uh, Jesus did not come and throw these away. Jesus didn't come along and say, well, we're not really making mankind in our in image anymore. We're just going to throw them away. And God doesn't come along and say, you know, walk before me crookedly and do all sorts of shameful and indignant things. No, it still rings true. Walk before me faithfully and blamelessly. All right, Pastor Mike, would you read for us from Exodus 13, the first two verses? Absolutely. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb, womb, excuse me, among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. All right, now as we look at this, this comes right around the time of the 10th plague. You know, God mm-hmm. takes this very seriously. The tenth plague is is a very very serious thing in Egypt, you know. God is trying to get the attention of Pharaoh, but also trying to get the attention of his own people, because as they get across the Red Sea, they're going to get really mad at Moses and say, "Moses, you know, why, why'd you take us out of here? We'd rather be under the tyranny of Pharaoh and you know have our graves in Egypt." But God says, "You're going to consecrate to me every firstborn." And what we find about this, going back to our critical thinking earlier. Is that something which is meant just to be a formality hmm. that you just check the box and say, OK, we we had somebody come along and they did a ritual and now we're good. Or is this meant to be something which actually relates all the way back to that moment in Genesis where God creates? He has an order. There are things which are good. Then there are things which are meaningless, which God has not invited into his order. But yet people have wanted to do because they're sinful. Pastor Amanda. Well, and I think then we have to ask why, right? Why does God call for the firstborn to be consecrated, specifically in that culture, in that time, the firstborn male, what was happening in this commandment? And what we find throughout God's call towards holiness in the Ten Commandments, in the Shema, in, uh, you know, you got Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all these like things that give and re-give the law. And then Jesus comes along and adds to even that is 
This idea of trust. Again, it goes back to earlier with Abraham, fidelity and walking with the Lord in in faithfulness and, and blameless is for them in that time, the firstborn male was in charge of taking care of the family when the parents got too old to take care of themselves. Or if they passed, the firstborn male was the one that was in charge of taking care of the younger siblings or the estate or the possessions to make sure the family could live and continue to live life. And so Jesus, or God, sorry, uh, the Trinity comes along and says, what if instead of trusting in your human systems to take care of you, you trusted in me? And you will exemplify that trust by consecrating, by sanctifying, by setting apart that which you trust in. And you're shifting your focus now from trusting in this system or this tradition to trusting in God will provide. Now, still, the firstborn male still had a responsibility to take care of his mom or take care of his parents when they got too old or to take care of his siblings if the parents were past and could no longer uh, take care of the family. That They still had responsibility. This does not negate that relationship and that responsibility, but it puts it in the right order. Sure. Yeah, and you know, I think to go along with that, that God cares about the family and, and has these family structures in place. And so we see exactly what Pastor Man is saying is, no, you just don't do it on your own, but you've consecrated and dedicated that you do this as a uh, understanding of how God's natural order is for us to, to uh, participate through life. And to that point, we talk about the responsibility one has within their family, and, and the kingdom of God is, is shaped around family. Family is an institution given before the fall. If people are motivated out of fear of God, being trustworthy characters, and having a a heart that says, you know, I'm not tolerating dishonest gain, I'm not tolerating all these evil schemes, if you are serving your family, does that help or hurt the created order? (laughs) I mean, mean, that sounds redundant, but this is the core of holiness. When you do these things which are, are holy, they do draw the world back to the created order where when we have breakdowns and we say well you know i'd rather do what i want to do i'd rather not take care of my parents i'd rather just cast them aside Mm. does that help or hurt the created order going back to critical thinking we can examine these things and see that it all weaves together in a tapestry of holiness that moves towards the providential design that god has given to us and a design that is ultimately good pastor mike you know, uh, Leviticus 27 and seven, uh, 7 says, Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I, the Lord your God, is, you know, um, because I am the Lord your God. And so God is holy. But what we also see here is that uh, that key word we used earlier, responsibility, that God is holy, but we, and God makes us holy, but we are called to respond to God, that we are called to consecrate ourselves, to dedicate ourselves, to give ourselves to God and to God's work. And so back to what you were talking about, you know, uh, being responsible and and, uh, taking care of family, it's one thing to do that, but then it's a whole nother thing to realize that this is God's desire for you to be a part of that. And you do this with this dedication and commitment to God as well as family, but especially to, to responding to God's call upon your life. And that's where to answer um, Pastor Dylan's earlier question of, is this all just a formality? Did we just do the baby dedication, walk away and get to go do, you know, whatever we want? By asking these questions, by searching into the scriptures, we find the answer to that is, of course, it can't just be a formality. Because um, I'm not the firstborn male. Uh, That's my brother's problem. I could just be like, "Eh, gummy, you got to take care of mom and dad. You got to take care of, uh, you know, family issues. and some days I wish I could do that. <laughs> but um, but no, but why we find that this is not just a formality, this is not just a ritual, this is not just even a church or people of God tradition. This is something we are all called to live into. We find that responsibility. And again, whether we find our family being uh, mom, dad, and 2.5 kids and a white pig offense or any variations that we have of families nowadays, we find this call to participate in holiness and healing and responsibility. And it takes it beyond just the literal or the legalistic and says, now how do you live your life? Who are you? Sure. Pastor Mike? 
You know, I think as we look to these scriptures and we understand that there are three major voices coming out of the Old Testament that Jesus embodies and fulfills, and that is the voice of the priest, the voice of the prophet, and the voice of the king or the sage or or, or, or the wise. And so if we look to back to that, you, you see that the, you know, the Pentateuch or you know, the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, those are more of a priestly voice coming through, and Jesus fulfills so. And then we look at the uh, the prophetic voice that really calls us not only to, to get away from just ritualistic stuff, but actually to go out in the world and to practice exactly that dedication and consecration to God. And then you have this... Uh, a wisdom literature, this shepherding, this caring, this nurturing and relationship for one another, this leading. And so we see that in the in the uh, wisdom literature, such as the Psalms and Proverbs and things, which are mainly written uh, or attributed to David and Solomon and things of that nature. But we see that Jesus fulfills those, that Jesus takes those and embodies those. And it's not just one, but it's all of those voices coming together and we see that Jesus fulfills you know that to to a an extent that brings such joy to creation. Absolutely. And you talk about application. Let's actually get to a couple of Old Testament scriptures which really apply this. Mm-hmm. You know, earlier I referenced Nehemiah and Esther. Let's dive into them. Mm-hmm. So in Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 3 and 4, Nehemiah's brothers, they they come to him to tell him about the state of Jerusalem and those surrounding regions. You know, the whole people of God have been in exile. And in verse 3, they say to Nehemiah, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. In verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, in our modern day and age, there's a lot of lamentation that goes on. We, we kind of live in a culture that, that pursues woe and lamentation, sadly. Nehemiah is not weeping because it's just the trendy thing to do. Nehemiah realizes the people of God have failed. God did not make them to be low-aspiration people who live in desolation and shame. God made them to be holy and excellent people who aspire to great heights that do magnificent things. That, that live surrounded by the good, the true, and the beautiful, who have high ex- expectations of, of how they would live, that they would be able to build up the world and society around them. And what we find here is Nehemiah, his reaction to this is, I'm going to go down. You know, I'm not of the, the royal family. I'm not of the priesthood. I'm not of the right tribe. But none of the people of the right tribe are doing anything. So I guess the cupbearer to a king living in a palace is going to have to throw away his posh robes and go down there and get people in shape. Mm-hmm. And what we see here is someone who fears God. They, they're interested in the truth. He's a man of truth. He is interested in that goodness, the truth, the righteousness of God, that things could be in their proper order. And also he hates the dishonest gain. He hates the covetousness and he hates the shame which has fallen upon his people. And so his response to this is we're going to go out there and we're going to do holy stuff. And throughout the book of Nehemiah, that is what you get. It ultimately ends with a, a rather severe chastising there in the final chapter. But Nehemiah is drawing those lines. He's saying God is God, not any sort of foreign king, not any sort of idol that you construct, or not even the own connivances you scheme against one another at home. <laughs> God is God. Fear him. He is dangerous and compelling. We're going to be righteous people, and also we're going to draw some lines. And that's a, a very good example of holiness being applied and going back to that standard that we have there from Exodus 18. And, and I really just like to draw attention to that. Pastor Mike, you had something? Well, you know, I think it, this is somewhat a prophetic-type voice here where we see that, you know, um, the, the exile is it happens when the people maybe they are going to to worship, but what they've done they've turned away from God in their action, and they end up out of the 
of the promised land. They lived away from God. And if you're going to live that way, then you find them yourself in exile. But but what we see here is this repentance, this remorse, this desire to go back and to and to be God's people. And Nehemiah sure. is is a, is a, a wonderful. Uh, book to study but again it is just a part of our entire canon but there is this call for us to walk the walk so to speak sure and what i find interesting in this is um again and maybe we're moving out of this and hopefully we are uh, within this area of christendom but where we were very concerned with jesus saving our souls and that was kind of it um or we you know we get into these debates are we bodies with souls or souls with bodies and we're creating these false dichotomies for God to come into and, and save us from. And what we find in this passage is God is really concerned with the very practical application of holiness. Yeah. Like, you, you know, how are you to be a whole people if you don't have a house to live in? Yeah. How can you be, um, and, and that is not to pick on, on anyone or people who are dealing with very horrible things, uh, situations in their lives, but that is to say, God created us to live lives of blessing. Yeah. And that means to have a house, to have food, to have family and community. And very practically, how do those things work out in our daily yeah. lives? And I mean, that's where the, the Shema will continue, that, that whole passage in, in Exodus uh, chapter 6. It will then go talking about what it means to teach your children for the law to be on your doorsteps and on your the post in your homes and on your uh, on your uh, your foreheads and on your wrists. This idea that this law is going to consume you and you can do nothing, absolutely nothing from the moment you wake up to the moment you lie down at night. You can do nothing outside of the holiness of God. And so, yeah, Nehemiah looks around and says, God has called us to more than this, practically more than this. What if what would it mean for a city to be or, or for people to be a city, uh, a light on a hill if you don't even have a city built? Yeah. So what do we need to do? We got to build walls. We got to, you know, we got to build uh, the cisterns and the wells and, and the marketplaces. We need to, to, to uh, uh, harvest our fields and, and sow things. And, uh, you know, obviously I am not a city planner or a gardener, so I don't know what I'm talking about practically, but. Nehemiah looks around, like you said, he looks at the people who are supposed to be the experts, the city planners and, and the agriculturalists, and they're not doing anything. He says, this is not who we were called to be. Yeah. Practically, yeah. we were to show the world what it means to live in God's righteousness from every little thing that we do. Yeah. Healthy and whole people aren't content just to live in burned ruins. Mm-hmm. But yet there were a lot of people who were. And Nehemiah rolls in and says, all right, we're going to get together. I don't care whether you've been making perfume or you are somebody who's from a noble household. You're going to get out there and work. Some of you will make hundreds of feet of wall. Some of you may only do what's in front of your house, but you're going to get out there and work. Get out there and do something. Mm -hmm. Pastor Mike? You know, I think uh, there's some things that we can learn here by reading these Old Testament texts that the people of God have often got away from worshiping the one true God and they've started worshiping maybe their rituals, worshiping other gods, some form or fashion of idolatry idolatry and we have to look at the world around us people we don't worship the church the church is meant to be an instrument it is that gathering where god works in but we don't worship church we don't worship the temple type of worship which is often uh, you know seen sometimes between the 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 sadducees and uh, different uh, leaders but then you know we don't we don't worship heaven we worship God. Is there a heaven? Absolutely. But we have to put our, our, we have to stay in that correct order. And so we can see all kinds of slippery slopes of idolatry, whether we worship the church, whether we worship social justice, whether we worship any of these things that, that God calls us to love one another, we have to be faithful and true to God. And that, that doesn't mean we don't care for others. It doesn't mean that we don't come and worship in the church and sing praises. But we have to have things in their correct order. Yeah, absolutely. And putting things in their correct order is, is critical to all this. And on that, let's get to Esther chapter 4. Amanda, would you read that? Yeah. Uh, verse 16 of chapter 4 says, Go, and this is Esther speaking, 
Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. All right. This is beautiful application of holiness here. Because going back to our critical thinking questions, you can read the Shema from Deuteronomy 6 and say, well, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Does that say anything about standing up to Haman or Haman, however you may pronounce his name? Does Is he mentioned in there at all? Is Persia mentioned in there? Is exile mentioned in there at all? <laughs> Wouldn't even be concepts at that idea. A dream of a dream of a dream at that point yeah. in the history of it, yeah. But if you really do love the Lord with all your heart, then suddenly you've kind of got to get up and mm. go in there and see what's going to happen. And Esther doesn't have all the questions right here. But yet she understands that the Shema does not end with simply me saying a few prayers there in my bedroom. Mm. You know, as as her Mordecai says to her, you know, if you sit idle in a time such as this, then your father's household and all your people, they're going to die. Like, yeah, there will be some redemption, some further growth, but it will come from a different corner than where you're at now. You and your father's house will die. You will not escape where you're at. And she understands that to really live that life of holiness, even though it may have not been spelled out for you in that particular situation, sometimes we do find situations that match biblical stories quite well. (laughs) That actually happens a lot more than I would have thought it does. But the call of holiness still says, get up. Go find out. Find out what it means to be someone who fears God and God alone. You don't fear Haman, Haman, more than you fear God. Mm. Find out what it means to be someone of true character, of someone of real righteousness, of God's justice. And Esther steps into this stuff. She hates the covetousness. She hates the dishonest gain that this wicked fiend is trying to pull over all of her people. And she steps up, and you see that holiness unfold. And it's a beautiful, beautiful scene. And, and, you know, Dylan, I think as we see God using her as an instrument, that is indeed holiness. Mm-hmm. We are called to be God's instrument in this world, to be used by God. It's God's work in us for God's work through us. We see that in Esther. Yep. Yeah. I think some language we've used earlier about uh, God being dangerous, um, I think, Dylan, you said dangerous and compelling, uh, using a line from, uh, I think, one of the research into camp meeting and it start it used the language of a dangerous and entertaining God, uh, but anyways, those words about dangerous often we wonder how God is dangerous, why God is dangerous, because God is also a God of love. How do we consolidate those two concepts? And I think we find it here in in Esther. This is dangerous, literally dangerous for her. I mean, she said it's against the law to see the king, and and the consequence for disobeying this law is not a slap on the wrist, it's not a five hundred dollar fine, um, it is death. And she goes to this knowing that righteousness calls her to very literally difficult places. And she has to decide if that righteousness, if that holiness is worth it. Um, and it, and I think that's when we talk about a dangerous God, what we're talking about is where God is calling us is to not the quick and easy road, right? That's the wide path. And everyone's on it because it's, it's the easy option. But to walk the narrow path means to give over even self-preservation. We talked about last week, Phoebe Palmer says what she had to give up were the idols of her family. And it seems contradictory how a God who puts in systems of how to take care of your family then also says, if you don't hate your mother and father and brother, you can't follow me. But this is is the, the call of holiness to us is just this dangerous and entertaining road. Yeah. And that's one of the things which is so fascinating because when you actually do set aside those idols, you find that you can actually love your family more Mm. when you love God first. And it's an interesting thing that puts things in their proper perspective. And with that being said, we've got two more scripture passages to look at, and they're actually our longest, (laughs) but we can read them as a block and then talk about them as Mm -hmm. a block. The first being Psalm 15, and Pastor Mike, if you would read that. Psalms 15, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, 
whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. All right, and obviously there's a lot we can learn throughout the Psalms about holiness, but this Psalm 15, it's short to the point, and it recaptures a lot of the language we've talked about, whether mm-hmm. Exodus 18, going all the way back there to Genesis, going all the way to Esther, Nehemiah, we see this Psalm wraps it all together, and it's kind of its own commentary. But if anybody wants to say something well, on it. I think what's interesting about this Psalm also is we're talking about who may dwell in your sacred tent, who can you know ascend your holy mountain, it is talking about who can get close to God, who can be in the presence of God. And I don't know exactly the history behind when the psalm was written, but as we continue throughout the story of the people of God, they will begin to try to spell this out in more clear terms. Who gets to be the person that goes into uh, the inner part of the temple? Who gets to go into the Holy of Holies? Who interacts with God on a very intimate basis? And this psalm says to us, it has nothing to do with all the measurements that the world will give you. And even the people of God will have to repent of this because they'll begin to add and subtract things to this list that really don't need to be added or subtracted. But what we find at the basis of this, the heart of this, is it is the people's heart. It is their behaviors, their attitudes, their their processes of how they interact with one another. Um, Because again, you know, the Shema that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then Jesus will add in the second is like this to love your neighbor as yourself. Really, he doesn't add that. He's reiterating what the uh, Old Testament law will be saying since the beginning. These two commandments cannot be separate, separate from one another. You cannot love God and not love your neighbor. And you can't love your neighbor without even some semblance of reacting to the love of God. And so this is the metric by which we get to decide or God decides who gets to be in God's presence? It is those who love. Yep, absolutely. All right, let's wrap up our program today by talking about the danger of holiness. Mm. I know, an interesting thing, right? But God's image is dangerous. I'm writing a, a book right now, a novel, and one of the the things that the main character figures out about three-quarters of the way through the book is that God made the heavens and the earth as dangerous things themselves. We wonder why the world is so brutal. Like, why is nature such a, a violent thing? Why is the power of lightning so severe, thunderstorms, things like that? But in truth, if creation is to be held together up above the void, if it is to be something which has real meaning, real substance, real opportunity for, for beauty, then it is going to be dangerous. Where things really become meaningless suffering is when you add the slightest amount of sin, sins that we often think are without consequence. Once those get riddled in with creation's dangerous and powerful structure, then it does create meaningless suffering. It it maims the system which God had produced. And when we look at the sovereign throne of heaven itself, it is a dangerous image. And this is true whether you look in Revelation or whether you look in Isaiah, which we're about to look at now, or you can go back to Exodus when Moses is there and hiding away in the cleft of the rock and God tells him like, hey, if you look directly at me, you're going to get smoked. <laughs> you know, don't do it. The, the image of God, the unrestrained you know, to look directly at God, not just a reflection, but to really see him, it is a dangerous affair. And real holiness is actually a dangerous thing. Creation is a dangerous thing. And that's part of its design, actually. Because danger itself is not the same thing as being bad. And that's an interesting concept. God is dangerous, but he is good. And when we start to wrap our minds around that, you start to realize that in order for something to be good, there actually is a necessary amount of danger involved in it. Pastor Mike, would you read for us Isaiah 6, 1 through 8? Of course. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. 
And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Almighty Lord. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken the tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Beautiful, but also extremely dangerous. In fact, God is so dangerous, the seraphim tending to him have to keep their faces and their feet covered, lest they be smote. This image, when God speaks, you know, it is a powerful thing. You know, just hearing the, the sound of their declaration of God's holiness, it shakes the doorpost and the thresholds. And this ain't some rickety building, folks. This is the temple in the kingdom of heaven. This is no small affair, mm. right? This isn't just somebody's, you know, ramshack lean-to that we threw together as part of a side project one afternoon. No, this is like the building of buildings, the principal architecture in all creation. And even it shakes at the declaration of God's holiness. And Isaiah, when he sees this, he, his first impression is, I am ruined, Ruined. I have been destroyed by looking at this. I, I, I cannot exist. I, I am done. Consumed by it. But yet, the seraphim flies over and with a live coal, touches his tongue, touches his mouth there with tongs from the altar. And you know, as a kid, I used to think this was like a special coal and it didn't burn. I don't think that anymore. Mm-hmm. First of all, the scripture doesn't tell us it doesn't burn. And also, when we look throughout the people of God, Moses really had to walk across a sea. Really had to spend 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus bled and died on the cross. Real mm-hmm. pain. Real blisters on the feet. Mm-hmm. Real nails through the hand. Logically, this coal is exactly what Scripture tells us to you. It's a dangerous coal that just burnt your mouth. Mm-hmm. But through that pain, through that suffering, a cleanliness happened. Holiness happened. In some mysterious and inexplicable way. We find that God comes with that dangerous image, desiring not that people be smoked, but that people be made clean. And that's what's so fascinating about it, is God has the power to uncreate, to destroy everything in an act of final calamity. Yet, his desire, to go to Second Peter 3 now, <laughs> is that not that any should perish, but that all might come to repentance. And that is a powerful thing when you set that against how dangerous God actually is. Yeah, and I think that's the amazing thing here. Like you said, the angels, the angels are so uh, even angels, which are like higher than humanity or or whatever in the in the the hierarchy of created order. But even they cannot exist in the presence of God without concealing their face and their feet. And yet, uh, Isaiah comes in and he doesn't cover his face. He sees this completely a hundred percent. And he looks at it, all this and he says, I am undone, or this translation says, I am ruined. And you would think, right, because if the angels just like would get smote, surely humanity would just be ash at this point. Yeah. And the holy other completely perfect God would have every right in a very weird sense of justice to just smite uh, Isaiah to smite the people of Israel to smite or even or God even at one point does say let me just wipe them out and Moses intercedes but you know this would have been perfectly in the created order this would have made total sense and yet God responds not out of this weird sense of justice but with true justice that says you have come now I will make you that which you need to be yeah. like you came here you've confessed you've repented and now you don't get to be left undone you get to be recreated and and then so then i like that this then follows you've been redeemed 
Now you have mission. Who will go for us? Oh, I will. Yeah. And that's amazing. Isaiah looks at this and the rain, the language of I am undone, you know, I, I have been unmade. Like <laughs> yeah. I'm, it's over. I, I met the final calamity, but, but God does reach in with his hand and say, no, no, you, you are loved and, and you have a purpose. And when you th- look there at how Revelation mm. describes the, the throne room and everything like that, that image of Jasper and Carnelian, you, you do see these booming peals of thunder and lightning which shock out of there by necessity. It's not Care Bears. It's not <laughs> cute and fuzzy. It's, in fact, the very opposite of that. Mm. It mm. is the most uh, powerful thing in existence. It, it is the most dangerous thing in existence. And we really need to understand just how dangerous and powerful God is to really understand the gravity of his love. Mm. And Isaiah 6 does a great job of weaving all that together. Pastor Mike? Well, I think, you know, if we look closely at this text, we see, uh, you know, first of all, Isaiah in confession. We also see some repentance and some, but most of all, I think this atonement for that Mm. God provides a way for us to be in God's presence. And it comes at a tremendous cost, this atonement, right here where it's basically kiss this this torturous, um, you know, burning coal that would literally kill you. We see that Jesus, in, as we, you know, move to the New Testament, going to a cross. And so even today in our baptisms, when we are baptized, yes, it is that new birth into the to the kingdom of God. It is that sacrament of initiation, but it is also the death to sin that this God is dangerous Mm -hmm. and he does call us to die to idolatry and behaviors that are not befitting the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Mm. All right. Well, we're right at an hour, so we'll go ahead and wrap up this program, but we do have some final thoughts before we leave. And I'll go first to make sure our others can round up their final thoughts. (laughs) So we talk about this dangerous image of God. And one of my favorite authors, uh, certainly one of my favorite fictional authors, is Jules Verne. And one of his books is The Master of the World. And it's one of his later books. And it centers around this character named Robert the Conqueror, who fancies himself the master of the world because he has a flying machine that he has built. And throughout the whole book, he's confounding law enforcement. He's actually captured a investigator. He's done all sorts of menacing things to the world. And the book ends. He's flying his, his flying ship across the ocean to escape, and he has declared that he is better than everybody else. He is the master of the whole world. He can hold everybody ransom. He's like the ultimate supervillain. And he flies his ship into a... Which, I mean, it's basically an airplane. He flies his plane into a uh, thunderstorm, and a bolt of lightning strikes it and disintegrates it, and it falls in ruin to the, to the ocean, and it's, it's over. And Jules Verne, he writes about providence a lot. And it's rare in the Jules Verne novels you hear God mentioned outright, though it does happen. But most of the time it's referenced as providence. The more you make decisions that line up, uh, principally with what we find here in Exodus 18, you, you recognize there's a power higher than you. You recognize God created you. The more you make decisions that line up with Exodus 18, the more God opens doors and the more creation lines up for that. And in contrast to that, the more you reject that, the more you say, no, I am the master of the world. I will fly through that thunderstorm because I am now God. Suddenly you'll get a lightning bolt reminding you that no, <laughs> no, you are not. Providence is actually God. And providence is dangerous and powerful and just destroyed your ambitions of taking over the world in a single flash. And it's a great end to that book. Um, it wraps up the book pretty quickly, actually, um, in a final climax. But, you know, it's just interesting to think about God being dangerous like that. Pastor Mike? Well, uh, final thoughts. I, I would say, you know, in, in the, the Leviticus which is right in the middle of, uh, you know, the Torah. You got 
Genesis, Exodus on one end, and Numbers and Deuteronomy on the other other side of those first five books. But right in the middle is Leviticus, and it is that holiness code. And we should always appreciate the law and understand that the law was not meant to be worshipped, but it was a means of grace that God gave God the, the people so that they could live in right relationship. And so this is to be traced really back to being that image of God. And so, you know, when I think of holiness, I hear a lot of people talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit and, and more that Pentecostal type power. But understand that for Wesley and and um, much of uh, for Christ's life, we're talking about that image of God, Christ being the the very image of God, being God, living it out in front of us that we're called to not only be filled with that Holy Spirit, such as Pentecost at the birth, but also to continue to reflect that Old Testament understanding of uh, the design and purpose that God originally created us, that transformation going back. All right. Mm -hmm. Pastor Amanda? You know, I've been trying to organize my final thought, and I can't quite get to it other than um, (laughs) you were talking about books and and, and uh, but we're gonna for our family movie night tonight we're gonna watch Godzilla King of the Monsters or God of the Monsters or whatever he's called or I think King Kong or no it's Godzilla that kind of new trilogy that's that's on that's out but anyways I think it's kind of interesting a lot of movies like that and even like some of the superhero movies as much as they save people they also like cause fantastic amount of destruction yeah um, which becomes a major plot point usually in the sequel It'll be like okay they saved us from this but then they like wiped out you know half of tokyo or san francisco or something like that or new york city um and if i were to correlate that with the story of god and with scripture if i were to make this a really bad analogy i think the fantastic thing about our god is there are things that are destroyed when god comes in right this is the dangerous aspect but they do not undo us we are not left in ruin like Godzilla or King Kong may leave us in. And I, I think there's hope in that, that the world is very destructive around us, but we do not have to settle for heroes that undo us. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, with that, thank you for joining us. It has been a pleasure and God love you and have a blessed day.